tonight we're uh, on the big book. We had a two-week hiatus where I tortured myself watching basketball, and I should have come here last Sunday night. They probably would have won, and uh, I'm certain of that. And anyway, that's over. I recovered, and I sat in the chair, and when I couldn't watch the last few minutes, so I kind of fast-forwarded it. And I saw they lost, and I turned it off, and I said, well, you know, I live in a new and wonderful world no matter the circumstances. And I w watched Netflix, and I said, you know, it is what it is. Does anybody relate to that? You know, it is what it is. We don't have to get disturbed by things anymore. Uh, tonight we're going to do the uh, history of AA. This is a great handout. On Saturday we're, we're plowing through steps 6 and 7, which are the steps we changed. We covered step six and the 12 and 12. Was it good? John, was it yeah, good? It was good? John said it was good. Uh, everybody else is asleep. Um, and then we're going to cover step seven from the 12 and 12 next Saturday. So um, I'll have the handout for you. If you have your book, bring it. Uh, we've really covered a lot in steps six and seven. And, and uh, I saw yesterday two things. One, uh, the char my character defects the character are the opposite of God's character. And then John made the point, it was brilliant, that we, don't, we see our character defects and how they affect us, but we don't always see how they affected others. And, and, and that's, uh, that was a really uh, excellent idea. I thought about that a lot. Uh, on Wednesday night, we are... Uh, doing the How It Works preamble, and I covered page 59, the 12 steps, have you heard of them? Pretty good. And then we're going to read on page 59, we're going to, page 60, we're going to do the ABCs and start on step three on Wednesday night. So if you can join us, it was good. This is from, I believe, Carry This Message. It's the synchronicity of events. I call it the hand of God. Uh, this is a, we were on the forward to the second edition which talks about the spark that was the flare started in Akron and they go through some of the AA history. I decided that we would do this instead. Uh, this is really good for new people. It's how everything came together. It's very simplified, but it's very well written and we'll see what we can get out of it. Uh, I'm gonna uh, cover as much as we can, leave some time for discussion, then we'll pick it up next week. At the end of this uh, handout is something on how AA has changed from the beginning, and we'll cover that too. Ed's shaking his head because he's read this before. It's good stuff. The Society traces the beginning to May 1935, meeting of two men in Akron, Ohio. That's the quote at the top. To work successfully with others, it's helpful to know the chain of events, as Bill Wilson put it, that brought the first 40 people together to write the steps to write Alcoholics Anonymous to launch the fellowship of the same name. Now, I believe to do, to do it, the work, I need to know the chain of events. And if I don't do the work, I can't work successfully with others. Uh, it's a subtle thing, but if you don't do it, you can't give it away. Right? And, um, and there, were, there were only about 40 to 60 people sober when they decided to write the book in 1930. Uh, late 1937, Bill and Bob were sitting in Dr. Bob's uh, kitchen and they realized that they had 50 or 60 people that were sober that had been dying. So they decided that they would write this book as a testament so people could have so a solution to their problem. 
Many people in AA and other 12-step groups know the names of Bill and Lois Wilson, Dr. Bob and Ann Smith, their roles in founding AA and, AA and Al-Anon. A miraculous synchronicity of events led to the powerful dynamics of recovery followed in AA and many other 12-step groups. And uh, we go through this uh, on, the, uh, on the podcast. If you look at Vision for You, I think it's page uh, 19, uh, 151 to 54, I go through the hand of God that brought Bill and Bob and, and AA number three and everybody together. And we go through it also when we uh, read about Roland Hazard on pay in the There's a Solution. They start in, in Switzerland in 1931. Roland Hazard, he was actually from a very wealthy Providence family. They were in shipping, and he, uh, he had more money than he knew what to do with, but he couldn't stay sober. And he went, decided to go to Switzerland to get help. He couldn't get help in the United States. And uh, he went to uh, Dr. Carl Jung. Now, Carl Jung was one of the three most prominent psychiatrists in the world. There was Dr. Adler, Dr. <coughs> Jung, and Dr. Freud. Uh, Joe and Charlie liked the joke that Freud was too busy or else we'd be on a couch. <laughs> and, and, and we probably wouldn't have recovered. We owe so much to Dr. Young. And Dr. Young told Rowan there might be hope he could stay sober. Now we're going to study that when we get to There's a Solution, page 26 to 28 in the big book. They talk about uh, how Rowan went to Switzerland. He worked a year with Dr. Young. He said he had understood himself perfectly perfectly and he was discharged and within three days he was drunk and he came went back to Switzerland and he asked Dr. Young what the problem was well he probably told, never told Dr. Young that he drank you know how we are uh, we don't want to ruin their feelings or their thoughts about us but Dr. Young told him that there's no hope for you can you imagine he says you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic there's no hope but we're here today and Dr. Young said something that changed uh, changed everything for us because he told Roland there was a hope, there was a phenomenon that he's seen alcoholics have, not explained where they have a whole change in their personality. Their outlook and attitude on life changes, the way they see the world, the way they react to things. So, uh, and he said, this, this is, so Roland says, well, I go to church. He said, no, we're not talking about church. We're talking about some spiritual experience. So Roland, uh, uh, went back, he said, if he could have a personality change through a spiritual experience. Now, a lot of people come here and they want to stay sober, but they don't realize that what they need is a personality change. And I can't fix my personality. Now, a lot of other people wanted to fix mine, I'm sure, but I couldn't fix it. Only God can, and, and it's changed through the way we see things with our relationship with God. So no spiritual experience no change in the personality. And how do you get a spiritual experience? You have to take the action of the steps. So here's a hint. No steps, no spiritual experience, and no personality change. Now that doesn't mean that you can't stay sober and celebrate coins for 25 years. You can say, I have 25 years, I'm a miserable alcoholic, and my personality hasn't changed. And, but, but I'm celebrating 25 years, it's your choice. Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't mean you can't stay sober without it, but it's unlikely because alcoholics drink because they don't like the way they feel. Did anybody else do that? So Roland returned to New York and found an Oxford group, and he went to the Calvary Church where Reverend Shoemaker was, and he 
has been very helpful in the writing of this book. I don't think he's mentioned in this chapter. He was the spiritual advisor for Bill W. in the New York group. Uh, they used a lot of his writings on, uh, uh, the big, on the big, big book to put in the new big book. And he was very influential. And then he sought the spiritual experience. The Oxford groups were informal fellowships of people from many and all religions, but it was mainly Christian Protestants who were not satisfied with their spiritual progress. Anyone can join and work through the tents of group, but I believe you had to be sponsored to go. And that's where the term sponsor came in, because you couldn't go to an Oxford group unless somebody sponsored you to go. And then the sponsor became the one who took the alcoholic to treatment the hospital and paid for it in those days. The sponsor in the early AA was the one who took you and sponsored and, and made sure you worked the steps before you went to the meeting and with Dr. Bob. So it was a whole different relationship back then. And the groups weren't focused on the problem of alcoholism. They didn't talk about alcoholism at all, but they were trying to lead a principled life. They were trying to practice spiritual principles in all our affairs. You see, have you seen that one of the steps? Have you ever heard of that? Like step 12? And so that whole idea came from the Oxford group. Frank Buckman was a Lutheran minister, was the originator of the Oxford group. It got the name <coughs> Oxford because a group of these men were traveling in South Africa in the 20s, and they were all from Oxford, England. And somebody said, well, these are the Oxford group. And that's how the name kind of stuck. It had nothing to do with Oxford, England, really. As a young man, he had directed um, boys' school in Philadelphia. It was a religious school. He, came, he had an argument with his board members. Anybody ever had an argument with people? He got mad, resigned, and left the country. Now, if he was an alcoholic, he would have drank, right? But he wasn't an alcoholic, so he was just miserable. But, but it, you can see the pattern here. And in England, in 1908, he was in a church meeting, and he heard a woman, she gave a talk on resentment and forgiveness, and he describes how when he was listening to the talk, he was looking at the cross, and it became an I, and he realized he was the problem. It wasn't them, it was him, and the way he looked at them. And he was greatly moved. So realizing that he held resentments against the six board members in Philadelphia defended him, Buckman went back to his room that night, sat down and wrote a letter asking for their forgiveness. He later said this action produced a sudden change in his life, an instant change. Uh, people here can relate how they've taken the actions of the steps, forgiven, uh, asked for freedom from anger and been changed. He never heard back from these people, but began to reflect on how his life was tremendously improved. So he asked himself these questions, how did that happen? And we use what happened, right? What did I do to bring that about? What did I do? If I can understand what I can do, I can renew myself in any way I want to. And we said, can we continue to do it? So what happened? What did I do? And what, I, what do I need to continue to do so it keeps happening? And then can I help someone else? You see the pattern? And that's what we've taken in AA. As he sought to understand his experience, Buck's, Buckman listed the things he had done, and these became their steps. He had surrendered. He had examined his sins, he had shared and confessed, he had made restitution, and he had asked for God's guidance. Does anything, any of these sound like steps that you've heard before? And he began telling other people how to do this, which is the sixth step, which was witness. 
And here's, here's a th really powerful statement. When we do these simple things, then and only then can we receive God's guidance. We talk about having God directing our lives, but if we don't take actions, nothing's gonna change. And I wrote no action and no guidance. And you can pray all day long for God's guidance, but if you don't take the actions to change, it's not gonna happen. And I wrote a decision without action is fantasy. I heard that somewhere. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's somebody who's sitting home that I decided to come to the meeting tonight. Right? I'm going to come. I'm going to be there. I'll meet you there. And they're not here. So that's okay. But if you don't follow through on the action, on the decision, you don't do the action. Remember, there are three, four birds sitting on a branch. And um, they all decide to fly south for the winter. So how many are on the branch? Four of them. They haven't gone anywhere. And they could decide that all winter. <laughs> they could just sit there. And that's what a lot of people do in AA. We decide we're going to go south. <laughs> but meanwhile, we haven't done anything. And, and, and remember, for us, not doing any action is dangerous because then we're sober without God. And we have no defense against our alcoholism. He was successful. People followed the procedure. The aquifers for groups grew and spread. Uh, they were in New York. They were everywhere. The, the uh, Oxford, uh, Thomas Edison's number one guy was in the Oxford group. And the Firestone, Henry Firestone, the owner of Firestone, his son was an alcoholic. And he heard about the Oxford group. And he asked for Thomas Edison to send his uh, friend, his name was Newman, to Akron. And he came and he did the Oxford group steps with uh, Firestone's son. He got sober. So then they started an Oxford group in Akron. Get the picture? And this was like in the early 1930s. And he, uh, he realized that these uh, five basic principles were the foundation of Christianity. Uh, they were really trying to practice the, the basic principles of Christianity right after the time of Jesus, uh, before they were written down. He called his movement First Century Christian Fellowship, and then they changed the name eventually to the Oxford Group. So when Rowan Hazard returned to New York, after consulting Dr. Young, he joined the Oxford Group and he started using its tenets. And this was about 1932 to 1933. And he had the spiritual experience and he stayed sober until he died. He never really became a member of AA, but he was very proud in the Oxford Group. The Oxford Groups are still in existence, but they kind of faded out in 1939 when they went to try to change Hitler. Well, they had good intentions, but they got involved in outside issues and they uh, went to Germany. And then after that, the war broke out and the Oxford group, some people felt they shouldn't have gone there. And so it kind of did, it's called moral rearmament. I think it's still in existence today. As he found sobriety, Roland heard that an old friend, Ebby Thatcher, was about to be committed to a mental institution for his alcoholism. Now remember, Ebby, uh, we find in Bill's story on page 10, Bill was sitting in his kitchen in November 1934, dying, and he said that he had enough gin hidden around the house for the day and night, right? And he had it hidden so his wife couldn't find it. And then he got this call from Ebby Thatcher wanting to come over. Now, Ebby was his childhood friend. He and Rowan Hazard grew up uh, 
in different places, but every summer they went to Vermont because they were wealthy and they had their summer homes. And, and Doc, uh, Bill Wilson, his father had a uh, boarding house in the town in Vermont. He used to go and became friends with them. And Lois Smith, her father was a doctor, and they were from uh, New York, and he would, they would, she would go there in the summer. See how all these people came together? And Bill and Abby used to have fun together. They, uh, they, they, were, uh, they were good drinking buddies. So Roland uh, took, uh, Abby was gonna be put in, uh, in prison because he, uh, he did two things that bothered the judge. Um, he drove into somebody's uh, house and then asked the lady for coffee. And then he decided he was gonna paint his house and he didn't like the birds, so he started shooting up the neighborhood. And of course he was drunk and they were gonna put him away. The judge's son was uh, Roland Hazard's best friend in the Oxford group. And Roland knew Abby and they said, let's go and see dad and see if we can take him to New York. And dad said, you can as long as he never comes back to Vermont. They didn't know what to do with alcoholics in those days. I mean, we were a threat to ourselves and others. So Rowan took Abby home, and in two weeks he worked through the Oxford Group tenants, and then Abby went to Reverend Shoemaker's Mission, that's where he lived, and he worked, and he, uh, he worked with alcoholics. But it was actually after 60 days, Abby was only sober 60 days, so how long did he, does it, do you have to be sober to go and work with somebody? Now you might say 60 days, but the big book, Dr. Bob was sober for 24 hours, and then he and Bill went to the hospital to find an AA number three. And if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here today. And he, uh, he took Abby to the Reverend Shoemaker, and one day he thought about Bill Wilson. So he called Bill Wilson, that's described in Bill's story in great detail. And he wondered whether Bill might be interested in what he's doing, and he told Bill, I have a religious program, right? and a simple idea, and um, he talked about uh, God, Bill didn't want to hear it, and uh, he says, I've got religion, Bill didn't like that. And um, they talked, and then Bill eventually decided that he could accept his own understanding of God. So Bill's drunk, dying, right? And Abby comes to help him, and Bill's fighting him. And anybody relate to that? And he didn't want to talk about God, and he didn't want to, accept God, because he had old ideas of God. So, so Abby said, well, I give up. Choose your own conception of God. It's your conception. You can't argue with that. Bill couldn't argue with that. He said once he started, accepted that, then things started to change. And we'll go over that and cover it. It's covered extremely well in the big book. Very powerful stuff. So Bill had been in the town's hospital in 1933 and met Dr. Silkworth, who wrote <coughs> Doctor's Opinion. You see how all this is coming together? And Dr. Sickwood told Bill that he had something wrong with him. He had an allergy of the body, which Bill could then understand because he couldn't control how much he drank. Anybody here have an allergy to alcohol? Well, if you do, I suggest you don't drink, right? But Bill had another problem. He couldn't keep from drinking. He couldn't live sober, not have an obsession to drink. Did anybody else have that? And Bill swore 18 trillion times you still have, they still have the Bible at uh, Stepping Stones where he signed the, the Bible and swore he wasn't going to drink. And, the, and Lois was so happy. And it's described in Bill's story, and that lasted about a week. 
And so Bill understood what was wrong with him. But remember, no human power can relieve my alcoholism. Bill, Bill knew the problem, but he didn't have a solution. And Bill Wilson gained understanding from Dr. Silkworth, but until Abby walked in his kitchen and shared with him what they had found he, and laid out the program for recovery, uh, we wouldn't be here today. Now, how did all those events come together <coughs> so that this thing happened in November 1934? Can you see the hand of God? All the people that were brought together. Um, Joe and Charlie make the point that God wanted to give his spiritual principles to the world again in a different form. And he gave it to alcoholics because he knew we would be desperate enough to do it. And, and so it's really a spiritual principles of how, how to allow God to direct your life. And if you're a Christian, how you can allow the Holy Spirit to be your director all day long. And that's what the 12 steps are all about. It talks about world of the spirit. What, what do you think they mean? You know, we enter the world of the spirit and how do we stay there? And so these principles, like Norm says, the big, big book tells you how to be, right, Norm? Right. And these steps tell us how to be that. And they're useful for any person in any religion who's seeking spiritual guidance. And they will work, right? So Bill had to go to the hospital one more time. And there's a little thing here about Dr. Silkworth. He worked uh, with alcoholics his whole life. He had lost all his money in the stock market. And he was a neurologist. And he went to work at Towns Hospital. Charles Towns had a hospital for uh, alcoholism and addiction. And so Bill talks about, uh, he describes his bottom and he had a dramatic spiritual experience. Now this experience has confused people because alcoholics thought that they had to have a similar experience. And he said, my depression deepened unbearably and finally seemed as though I was at the very bottom of the pit. Finally, just for one moment, the last vestige of my proud obstinacy was crushed. When I see new people, I like to hear if their last vestige of proud obstinacy was crushed. And it's hard to tell, but I know mine was, and I'm so glad, and I hope it is today, because I can get obstinate again, right? And so we have to continue to crush our obstinacy, which is to deflate our ego, right? <laughs> All at once he found myself crying, if there is a God, let him show himself. I'm ready to do anything, anything. Actually, he said he hasn't done anything for me, but I'm ready to do anything. And suddenly the room lit up with a great white light. It burst upon me that I was a free man. All about me and through me, there was a wonderful feeling of presence. Now, I've heard people who aren't in AA describe that Bill W. was having DTs when he did this. I don't think people have DTs and then immediately start thinking about how they're going to help other people. <laughs> you understand? Uh, he had a true spiritual experience. Now, uh, people would come to AA in the beginning and they were waiting for this to happen. But if you notice, um, Paul had, uh, Saul had an experience on the Damascus Road. God stopped him and talked to him and said, hey, Saul, get your act together, right? And you need to stop doing what you're doing and you need to change. And then he said, if you do these things, you'll become Paul. And he became the great evangelist. Well, Bill W. was the same thing. God has chosen people. Now, when Paul preached, not everybody had the same experience he had, right? Mm -hmm. Initially, but eventually they had a spiritual experience. So our spiritual experience is when we realize that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it could be suddenly or quickly. It really depends how quickly you work the steps. But it's where you change your, the way you see things. 
Now for Bill, I believe this had to happen. I believe this was the major moment where God made his move in AA because Bill was driven, driven to help people the rest of his life. He couldn't be stopped. And nothing stopped Paul, right? Nothing could stop them. And Bill, Bill was changed. And I think that's what it took for us to be here. I believe this is where God made his move. And then we're going to talk about God's other move was in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. So Abby visited Bill, and you can read that page 12 to 14 of Bill's story, some of the most powerful pages I've ever read anywhere. And they talked about the Oxford group, and uh, Bill worked the steps, and then he immediately thought of how he could help others, how he could give this away, and then he was on his way. And then he observed that, and he tried to work with alcoholics for six months. He worked until May when he went to Akron. So for six months, Bill uh, couldn't get anybody sober. But his wife says, you're sober, Bill. And he realized that it hadn't helped anybody, but it helped him. And we talk about when everything else fails, working with other alcoholic will save the day. Why? Bill was not in himself. He was working, serving others. He was trying to help people. He wasn't back in his self-centered personality. And even though those months weren't easy, he was able to stay sober. Then, um, then he it talks about, he, he wanted to get them to surrender. And he would tell people they need to find God. I do that too. It's bad. I shouldn't do that anymore. Uh, he was trying to help them, but most alcoholics looked at him and said, what's wrong with this guy? Is he some kind of fanatic or something? And, and I've had people come up to me and tell me I talk about God too much. Well, you know, there are other meetings. He hadn't helped anyone. One day he went back to town's hospital. Dr. Silworth, he gave him a very good suggestion. And I, we all have to remember this. He says, I've been trying to help alcoholics for six months and nobody listened. And Dr. Silworth said, Bill, you're going about it wrong. You're trying to get these people to have this white flesh experience. And what you really need is to tell them uh, about your allergy and the obsession, the problem. And when I start with new people, I have them read doctor's opinion. And I have them, uh, I tell them what my problem is and ask them what their problem is. And unless you understand your allergy and your obsession, if you, don't ha if you have that, then you understand that you're powerless, right? And then you seek a power. You don't tell people you need to find God if they don't understand they're powerless. Yeah, it's from a powerless, humble state that we seek God. Nobody comes in here and says, I'm having a bad day, and wife's yelling at me, and I want to come to AA, and I want to find God. Uh, I, I've never heard that one. But um, they understand after a while that that's what it's all about. And this is what the book does. See, the book's laid out that the first four chapters of Doctor's Opinion tell you about the problem, and then the solution, which is uh, uh, willing to believe in a power greater than ourselves, and then we read how it works, which is the steps on how we find the power, right? So we, the book teach, does it the way we're supposed to do it. And it says they can see the hopelessness of what they're doing, and they may try your program. And I write life as they've been living it. And we don't tell anybody they have to do this, right? We just suggest that if you don't have any other way, and your life's an effing mess, we suggest you do this. And even then, most people will balk right? But you get that person, that rare person who has that grace of God, and they'll do the steps, and we see many of them here tonight. Harold's a testament to that. But Harold's been here two years. I remember when he came, and I can't tell you how many people I've seen come in and out since that time. 
just at this meeting or that we've had back there, Stu and I working with. This is a tough uh, disease. And so uh, uh, the people here tonight, you've been given a gift. So uh, use that gift and keep seeking God with everything you have. The very next alcoholic they talked to was Dr. Bob, and Bob was in Akron. And he was in a proxy fight in a small company there, and uh, he lost the battle. He was going to get everything put back. He was going to be a big shot again. That was a dangerous situation for Bill. Bill wasn't thinking about helping other alcoholics when he went to Akron. He was thinking about helping Bill. And he was a very successful guy who lost everything, and he was going to be a big shot. But he lost it. He didn't have any money. He's in the Mayfire Hotel, and he describes how he was about to drink. And um, uh, here's, I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to end with this today. Can you bring the handout back next week? Uh-huh. Everybody say yes. yes. If, you don't, if you don't and come, you're going to do push-ups. Uh, we write out of paper again. My wife says, my, what do they do with these things? Uh, so here on page 154, uh, I think this is powerful because I think this is really the most uh, powerful uh, pages in the book. He's bitterly discouraged Bill W. He found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. Still physically weak and sober, but a few months, he saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? One dismal afternoon, it was a Saturday in May, second Saturday in May, he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened to the bar. What about that line, we stood at the turning point? This is where Bill was at the turning point. It was my turning point. Because if Bill turned in the wrong direction, I don't believe we'd be here today. But God had a plan for Bill. And remember, he'd worked six months trying to help other alcoholics and seeking God. He saw a gay crowd inside. And there he would find companionship and release. You see, he's starting to bullshit himself, right? Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and would have a lonely weekend. So he was getting liquid courage. Anybody ever go for liquid courage? Uh, We have solid courage, too. It comes in all forms. Of course he couldn't drink, but why not sit hopefully at the table? A bottle of ginger ale before, hopefully for what? After all, he had not been sober six months. Now, how many times have you heard that? I've been sober six months. I can quit any time I want. I've done it. I can do it again. I'm making too much of this. Perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks. Anybody th- understand Bill's thinking? He wasn't thinking about one drink. He was thinking, well, I'll have three. No more. No more. And then here's where God was talking to Bill. We talk about how... God will give us sanity, restore us to sanity. Fear gripped him. Why did fear grip him? He was on thin ice. Again, was the old insidious insanity, that first drink. And then listen to this, with a shiver, he shivered. He turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. Now, if you don't believe in the power of God in someone's life, read this. And I know it's happened in my life, and other people can talk about that. And then he uh, talked to uh, uh, Dr. Bob, and we'll pick up with that next week. So uh, it's interesting. I had some handouts that started on page 17. And then I had some that started with here. And I said, well, I bet the last time I did it, I finished with page 17. So my wife says, well, why don't you just do those? 
I said, no, we'll try to do the whole chapter. So we didn't get that. There's great stuff in here. Be sure you come back next week. And you might want to read it. And you might want to read Bill's story and a vision for you. Thank you.